I want us to follow together as we read in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 8. Now, from verse 1 to 7, Jesus tells a parable. I'll just summarize it for you. It's a rich man who had a steward that was wasting his money. He's going to fire him. The man called in those who owed his master, and he changed the bills. And he relieved them of some of their debt. So, verse 8, the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Thank you. You may be seated, please. I like to title this, Spending Your Life and Your Money Wisely. Because in this passage, Jesus boldly confronts the materialistic culture of his day. And in so doing, he lays down a challenge for the materialistic culture of our day. Now, that is not a popular thing, and yet we must preach the whole counsel of God. And from time to time, you and I all need to be confronted with the materialism and the greed that characterizes our times. It's essential. Here's a steward who is going to lose his job. He's not been a good manager. And in the parable, Jesus says that the master informs him, you better get your accounts in order. I'm going to take away your stewardship, your management. So he calls a man in, in verse 5, a debtor, and said, How much do you owe my master? Said, A hundred measures of oil. Take your bill. Write 50 canceled. You only owe 50. He put him in his debt. He called to another and said, How much do you owe? Verse 7. He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. And the man did. And then the master commended the man who had mismanaged his money because he had dealt shrewdly. He wasn't commending him for stealing. He was commending him for using money in order to put people in your debt because he was commending the proper use of money. It's not to be hoarded. It is to be used. It is to be invested. <coughs> and so he makes the commendation. Now, as Jesus comes to the end, he makes the application. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either 
serve God or mammon. You'll hate one and love the other or be loyal to the one and despise the other. You simply cannot serve God and money. And here he confronts for us what most of us think is the really good life. What is the good life to you? A hundred people who had appeared on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous were interviewed and every one of them said they were not successful. And whether they made 150000 a year or whether they made a million dollars a year, they outlined the good life as making more money than what they were currently making. Because money is never enough. Because money is never a satisfying master, Jesus is saying. It is funny, I know, that you don't like to hear messages on money and you joke, why do Baptist preachers preach on money? Because it's part of the scripture. It's part of the whole counsel of God. It is part of what God says. And in our culture where we're sold something either on television, by radio, or over the telephone, which is not my favorite way, <laughs> we're constantly being faced with choices about spending. Actually, when you think about Jesus talking about money, 16 of his 38 parables regard money. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses, 288 verses deal with money. More than on prayer, more than on faith, more, uh, more than on any other subject. Out of that, out of those verses, there, are, there is more on money and more instruction on money than anything else. I remember back when we were raising money for willing hearts and I was preaching six straight Sundays on giving. Uh, you should have read my mail. Pastor, you're going to drive all the people away from our church. Pastor, nobody will come back. Visitors came with me and says, does he preach every Sunday on money? <coughs> I wanted to say, <clears throat> tell them yes. <laughs> See if they come back. You know what was strange about that? I think uh, people want to know what preachers are like and what they're about. We had more cars. We live at the end of a street. And if people were driving by to see what kind of a house we lived in, you wouldn't have believed how many cars pulled into our driveway trying to be inconspicuous to check out the pastor and see how big a house he lived in. But they were fooled. They couldn't drive past. They had to turn around. And guess whose driveway they had to turn around in? <laughs> so I just installed a private camera and took a picture of every license plate. <laughs> I remember thinking, where are all these cars coming from? And I was glad I had my three BMW 750s hidden in the garage so they couldn't see them. But it was really funny. And I would get anonymous letters. Why are you preaching on money? Reminded me of one D.L. Moody said he preached on money. And he got a, a letter. And there was only one word in the letter. It said fool. He said, you know, it was the only letter I ever got where a guy signed his name and forgot to put down the message. <laughs> fool. <laughs> Those are serious questions to us. How can I make my money go farther? I don't have enough money to tithe. But I'm not living for money. I'm not dedicated to mammon. Oh, I'm dedicated to God. 
Why do others seem to get ahead while I struggle? And others who don't honor God can live any way they want to while I try to honor the Lord and all I have is struggle and battle with my money. So it's important that we, we really face this issue and let the gospel challenge us in our culture. So Jesus kind of concludes his lesson on this by saying you cannot serve God and mammon. He didn't say God uh, and more than, he wants you to serve God more than money. Or he didn't say you cannot serve God for money. You just cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. It's absolutely impossible. Either we serve God and use money or we serve money and use God. In every case, we either serve God and use money or we serve money and use God. I tried to ask myself this question, how would I know if I were serving mammon? Because there are very few of you that I would know of who would consciously get down on your knees and say, I'm dedicating my life to serving money. I want more of it. I want all I can get. And I'm going for it. Very few of you would do that. Most of us would say, I'm just struggling to make my living, have a little left over to give. I want to give you four tests today. I want to give you four tests. I want you to take the test. I want you to tell me, are you serving God or money? Test number one. Are you ready? Here it is. Are you willing to sacrifice things that are more important than money, that are better than money, for money? Are you willing to sacrifice things that are better than money for money? Well, you say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, how about Proverbs 22.1? A good name is rather to be had than what, Pastor? Do you know? Great riches or wealth. And favor of others is more valuable than having much. Test number one. Am I willing to sacrifice things that are better than money for money? Let me give you the second test. Test number two. Do I attempt to buy with money the things that only God can give? That's the test. Do I try to buy with my money things that only God can give? I am here to announce to you money cannot bring you true joy, lasting joy. God can give that to you, but you can't buy it. You cannot buy it. The third test is, does my concern for money outweigh my concern for my responsibility to God? Am I willing to trade my responsibility to God for more money? Fourth test. Fourth test. Do I enjoy serving God without money as much as I enjoy serving God with money? And do I enjoy serving God with money as much as I enjoy serving God without money? Because all of us can name people who got down on their luck, as it were, and got very righteous for a period of time. 
And then when they got back on their feet, they are nowhere to be found. I could name them. I probably have a list at home. But the test about whether I'm serving God or mammon is, am I as happy serving God with money as serving him without? And am I as happy serving him without money as I am with money? How can I keep money out of the throne room of my life? In an age where clothes are everything, when the size of your house is everything, when the make of your car speaks volumes, when you can drop a little word about your last three-week vacation trip to Hawaii and really impress people, when our world is sated with money and the materialistic culture, how can I keep money out of the throne room of my life? Now, I read and reread this. I read this in every translation I could get my hands on so I could get the sense. I read it in Greek. I read it. I read the Weymouth translation. I read the Living Bible, the NASB, the ASV. I read the RSV, the IZZ. I read them all. And I came up with, with some ideas out of this that I want to share with you on what Jesus is really trying to get at that I pick up from the parable. If I really want to be happy and I want the rich life and the good life, how do I get it and keep money out of my throne room? I'd like to make some suggestions to you. First, be accountable. Be accountable. Because if there's anything that comes out of this text, it is about a man who was a steward and a manager. Verse 2, give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. There hangs over the heart of every disciple the clear warning from Jesus. It is the word of Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord can take away. But you better bless the name of the Lord whether you have it or don't have it. Because everything starts here with a godly sense of stewardship. My money is a stewardship. It isn't mine. It is a gift from God for me to manage. The talent of these four men who sang the quartet this morning, that talent is not theirs. It is a stewardship. And if it is a stewardship, then I am accountable for how I handle my 24 hours a day and how I handle whatever it is I make. I am accountable. You are accountable. And no doctrine of Christian stewardship can ignore the concept of accountability. And if I'm accountable, it doesn't just mean I'll answer for it at the end of time. It means day by day, there is the possibility that if I mismanage what God gives me, he can take it away. I was reading the other day about the 100 richest men in America. And I believe it was 91 of the richest men in America had all been broke more than once. Isn't that interesting? They'd all been to the bottom, but they came back. They had lost it, but they came back. And every believer has this written over his checkbook and his daytimer and over the affection of his heart. 
You are a steward. You are accountable. And not just at the end time, day by day, the Lord can take and the Lord can give. And the Lord can give you more and the Lord can take back. And the Lord can watch you prove yourself as a manager. And that jumps at you from this parable. Secondly, be wise. Be wise. If you want to be happy, if you don't want money to take over the throne room of your life, be wise. Look in verse 4. I've resolved what to do. He made up his mind. When I am put out of my stewardship, they will receive me into their houses. I'm going to put people who owe my master into my debt. And so when I lose my job and have no place to live, they'll have to take me in. I'll put them into my debt. Do we understand Christian giving that way? That when I take what God makes me a steward of, and I invest it, I give it away. That I am investing and it will come back to me. Can I trust God to bring back around what goes out from me? And Jesus' answer to that question is yes. That's why he commended the man, even though the man was going to be fired from his stewardship. And so in verse 5, he called one of his masters. Verse 6, he forgave him 50. Verse 7, he called another and forgave him 20 of wheat. And then in verse 8, the master commended him because he had dealt wisely. We need to be wise. John Wesley had a little saying. I like this. Write it down. This is a good thing to give to your children. And put the motto up. Here is his motto for all the Methodists in England. Make as much as you can. Save as much as you can. And give as much as you can. I like that. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Make as much as you can. Save as much as you can and give as much as you can. But be wise. Keep from being deceived by money and be wise in the use of it. It's not to be hoarded because if it's hoarded, it'll soon be gone. In a famous sermon in the early church, Clement of Alexandria preached on the rich young ruler. And I want to give you a quote that he, that he said. If God really wanted Christians to give everything away and have nothing, why would he have commanded us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked? He was arguing that some people said, no Christian should own anything. You should give it away. And here is John Wesley who says, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Now, how do we balance the two? And Clement said, if God wanted us not to have anything, he would never have told us to feed the hungry and give to the poor. Because we wouldn't have anything to give. And then he went on to say this. No, God wants us to use wealth wisely, not to abandon it. Money in itself is neither good nor bad, but we may put it to good or bad use. If we are to use money wisely, we must get rid of evil desires which cloud our judgment. Then he went on to talk about envy and covetousness. So let no man destroy wealth, destroy rather the passions of the soul which are incompatible with the better use of wealth. Become good and you will make good use of riches. I like that. So the word that I get from the parable is not only be accountable. If I want to keep money out of the throne room, remember I'm accountable. But I must be wise in the spending of my money. And don't be deceived. How many of you remember flypaper? Does anybody here remember flypaper? 
How many of you know what flypaper is? The fly lands on the flypaper and says, I own this flypaper until he tries to take off and he realizes that the flypaper really owns him. And I, I was thinking of that the other day. I can remember my grandma used to have a, a flypaper strip that came in strips. You know, they'd hang down right over the kitchen sink. She had a flypaper strip. And I loved to go count how many flies had been trapped and laugh at the trapped flies. But that's the way it is with money and a believer in the 20th century. We think we've got it, but oh no, before we know it, it's got us. Because we don't know how to use it wisely. The third thing that comes out of this parable to me about money is, if I'm going to have the good life, the rich life, the abundant life, and keep money out of the throne room, I must be faithful. Look at verse 10. Jesus makes what is to me a rather curious application. He who is faithful in what is least, money is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. You see, money is God's test as to whether he can trust us. Are we faithful with the money God gives to us? He entrusts to us. For it is a measure of how we will handle spiritual things. How I handle my money is a measure of how I handle eternal things. Somebody said to me not long ago, Pastor, you've got too strict requirements on your deacons. Deacons have to be tithers, and that's a strict requirement, and not many people can meet that requirement. <laughs> and I came back to verse 10. He who is faithful in that which is least, money, will be faithful in that which is greater, spiritual things. No, I don't make any excuses for that. And I don't make any apologies for that. God's test of me is, am I faithful with what he's given me? And when I'm faithful in the things of mammon, I will be faithful in the things of God. And if God can trust you with little, he will trust you with more. If he can trust you with this in kind, money, he'll trust you with that in kind, spiritual things. That's why I think, teacher... Sunday school teacher, you must be an example. How are you going to teach on giving unless you're giving? How dare I stand up here and talk to you about tithing if I'm not a tither myself? Amen? And we staff might be surprised. These people not only know exactly what we make, they probably know how much we give. I don't know how they find it out unless the tellers tell them. But that's what tellers are supposed to do is tell, isn't it? George, but I don't know why we call them tellers when we ask them not to tell. Hey, did you ever think about that? Why, why do we do that, Al? Why do we call them tellers? They're not supposed to tell. George Buttrick said, of all the masters the soul can choose, there are at last only two choices, God and mammon. All choices, he said, however the alternatives may be disguised are but variants of this choice. You choose to serve God or you choose to serve money. And he says, <coughs> you, can, you can pull all choices of a God, of a master, down to those very two. 
there is a fourth thing I think that is implied in this parable. And uh, it is found in verse 12. If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own because you cannot serve two masters? I think it is imperative and it is a broad New Testament teaching that we are not only to be accountable and we are to be wise and we are to be faithful, but we must be content. Now there's a fine line here. On the one hand, the whole capital system is designed to challenge me to take and invest what I've got so that I can get more. But on the other hand, the scripture is clear. I'm to be content with such things as I have. So the Christian is to live in a constant tension between proper use of his talent and ambition, not greed, but ambition, ambition for the glory of God, and on the other hand, contentment with what he has. Now hold your hand here and turn over to, to Timothy, if you would, and turn to Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy and chapter 6. And notice what Paul says. In verse 3 he says, I'm talking about godliness. I'm talking about not getting caught up in envy, strife, and reviling. And verse 5, the useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. People who teach you that the way to get gain, to get more, is to get godly. He said, from such withdraw yourself. But then notice his statement. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And those whose goal is to be rich will fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Wow. Am I content with the house I have? Well, should I just let it not go unpainted? Let it fall down? Oh, no, that's not what he means. Should I be content with a car I drive? Oh, no, let it go. Don't polish it. Don't fix it. Just do the best you can and be content even if it breaks down. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that I can live forever on, in the level I'm living in and be satisfied that God has not taken anything from me or he has not cheated me. I am satisfied with what I have. But I will make the most of what I have. Now let me give you the key in distinguishing between proper ambition and laziness. And that is this. The difference is motivation. What is my purpose in using what God has given me? Is it for myself and my own gain? Or is it for the glory of God and the use of others? Secondly, the key is faithfulness. Am I taking what God gives me and faithfully using it for the Lord? And as I invest my life and time and money and talent, am I willing to wait on the Lord and be content until God gives me whatever else he wants me to have? Shirley and I have talked from time to time about selling our house and building another house. And then I look around and I say, well, why would I want to sell my house, build another one that would be smaller than what I've got and cost me $50,000 more? And who wants to give a 58-year-old man a 30-year mortgage, huh? But anyway, <laughs> how can I make the payments otherwise? <coughs> 
And you know, there is a fine line here we have to come to. Be content with what we have. Be content with where God has placed us. And be faithful and be motivated to serve God, but wait on Him to give us what He wants us to have. The fifth thing is, I get out of this that God doesn't want me to be full of worry. I must be worry-free. You cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other or despise the one, be loyal to the one and despise the other. To me, it's very clear. Whatever worries me will master me. Whatever occupies me will ultimately master me. And if my prime concern is money, then money will be my master no matter how much I profess my loyalty to God. Whatever worries me masters me, which is why Jesus said, take no thought about tomorrow. He's not saying don't plan because the book of Proverbs commends the ant who puts away. He's not saying don't plan. He's just saying, look, don't let money be such a consuming passion and a consuming worry that you become its slave. It's very simple. That's it. Don't let more be my master. Don't let mammon be my master. For whatever worries me will ultimately master me. There's a sixth thing, and that is be satisfied. Be satisfied. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. There's a fascinating little passage in this last practical chapter of the book of Hebrews that uh, I like to get to from time to time. I read this chapter often because I think it's one of the great chapters of the New Testament. But in verse 5 he says, Let your conduct, your lifestyle, be without covetousness. This is how you know you are rich. This is the life of grace, the life of fullness, the life of abundance. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be satisfied with such things as you have. But now there's a different emphasis. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. There it is. The idea is that I am to be satisfied that the things that really make me happy are things that God gives and his presence is all important. It is not more money that will make you happy. It is not a nicer car, not a nicer house, not more shoes, not more clothes. It is God who is the source of our happiness. Tertullian wrote in a, one of the church fathers, he said, Can a man be poor if he is free from want? If he does not covet the belongings of others? If he is rich in the possession of God, rather he is poor who possesses much but still craves for more. That's the man who is poor. He has much but he craves for more. When money and the things of this world are our goals, rarely the good life is really found. I want to ask you a question today. How would you describe the good life? How would you describe the abundant life? How would you describe the life of fullness that God has for you and blessing? And I believe 
that goals are valuable and I believe that goals are important. And I believe that heaven is the ultimate goal of every believer. But at the same time, I believe that Jesus Christ said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more eternally. He said that. But he also said that you might have it more abundantly. And what he means by that is, today and tomorrow, as I grapple with money, as I grapple with a materialistic world, as I grapple to pay my bills, as I grapple to provide for my family, as I grapple to have a means by which I can give to others and give to God and support God's work and help others who are less fortunate than I, as I grapple with that, there, right there, I can have the abundant, rich, full life. And the key is in getting my mind off money and on God, serving God and not mammon, and making sure that while I have a goal, I find joy in the journey, in the process. That's what God wants. I think that's why he said, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. I don't think you have to wait till you get to heaven to enjoy life. I think that's a mistake. I think heaven is for the here and now. I think God intends for me to enjoy life today. And be content with what I've got. And the way to do that is to be satisfied with God. To be worry-free by making God my, my God and not mammon. To be content. To be faithful and to be wise and to be accountable. And when that happens in my life, as I take the teaching of the Word of God and apply it, then I understand what Jesus is saying. I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. That's to me, that is to me the good life. I went outside and sat under the stars last night for about an hour just to count my blessings and think about all the things the Lord has given me. And the devil came and said, you don't want to preach on money. Your people are tired of hearing money. And I said, devil, it's too late. <coughs> my course is already set. I believe people want a challenge, don't you? I believe most people need to be challenged. I think we have so much materialism today, we need a constant challenge. You take a good golfer. He doesn't go through a magazine and look for a golf course that says, this is a cinch. Boy, this one is easy. You'll par every course. It'll be easy. This is a great cinch for you. No, that golfer, he looks at that magazine and he says this one, this is the toughest course in America. It's called the Mean Devil. It's got narrow fairways. It's got wee little greens. It's got huge big bunkers. And the guy picks up his chest and he says, that's for me. Man, that's the one I'm going after. And I think that's the way with most Christians. We're challenged all too little in the area of money because we're afraid to talk about it. A man by the name of Dick Leiter went to Hawaii to speak. And he saw everywhere people wearing T-shirts saying, I survived the road to Hana. And he said to himself, I got to drive that road. I want one of those t-shirts. And so he rented a car and he started on that road. There are 54 switchbacks on that mountain road. Do you know what a switchback is? If you're in Allegheny County, you know, is when you go like this and then you loop back around. There are 54 of those on the road to Hana. <laughs> he said after number 11, <clears throat> certain things happened to his midsection anatomy. And he pulled the car over by the side of the mountain. And of course, the canyon is straight down and there's the ocean. He gave up everything that he had taken in for dinner. 
and turned the car around and said, I don't care, I'm not surviving Hannah. But as he went back to the hotel, he made up his mind he was coming back and he was going to make that trip. So not long after that, he had a chance to take his 15-year-old daughter, Greta. And he said, honey, we're going to rent a car and we're going to survive the trip to Hannah and we're going to get one of those T-shirts. And so they got in the car. They rented a convertible. Thought this would be great, riding alongside the ocean in the mountains. They get to about the 24th switchback, and she said, Daddy, let's turn around. I could be on the beach getting my tan. He said, no, we're going to make it. And then it started raining, and they had to put the top up on the convertible only to discover that the rental car didn't have air conditioning. So he said, I drove as fast as I can trying to get to Hannah. We survived those switchbacks and finally drove into it, and there was nothing much there. He said, it was terrible, a little old clapboard Chinese uh, store. And he said, I, I, we got in there, and they didn't even have a bathroom there. And all we could get was a Pepsi. It was nothing to see. It was just like any other little commercial Hawaiian town, village. But then they overheard the people in the parking lot talking about, wow, did you see those seven sacred pools? Weren't they beautiful? Did you see those huge whales breaching out there? Did you see the botanical gardens? He looked at Greta. Greta looked at him. She said, Daddy, did you see any of that? He said, no, I didn't see any of that. She said, you know, I think we missed the road to Hana. They got to the destination, but the joy wasn't in the destination. The beauty and the joy was in getting there, and they had missed it. Why did Jesus say, I have come that you might have a good life, an abundant life? Because he wanted to dangle heaven out here in front of you and say, hang on. I mean, survive if you can so you can get to glory. Now, <coughs> heaven's going to be great. I'm not even a gemologist, but I can tell you, heaven's going to be great. Streets of gold, gates of pearl. I mean, it's going to be beautiful. But I want to tell you, Jesus didn't die just so you could get to heaven. He died so he could fill you with the Holy Spirit and teach you the word of God and show you how to live even in a materialistic world so that you could find great joy in the journey. So that you could live and be happy and not be a slave to money and not a slave to passion and not a slave to the world, but rather a slave to God. And when we rid ourselves of mammon as God, we will find great joy in the journey, whether you have much or little. Now, if you've never been saved, you don't have spiritual eyes to understand spiritual truth. But once you give your heart to Jesus Christ, spiritual truth will begin to make sense to you. And your attitude towards money will be shaped by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit so that you're not a slave to anything but God because you cannot serve God more than money. You cannot even serve God and money. You can only serve God. And thus you will find the abundant life and joy in the journey. Amen? I'm excited to get back out there and live and have a salesman try to sell me something and say, I don't need that. I'm content with what I've got. Amen? There is joy in the journey. Let's stand in prayer.